630 Chad Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins. Weekdays at 6 on 630 Chad. Edmonton's home for breaking news on your favorite teams. Now, Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on the voice of your Oilers and Eskimos. 630 Chad. Rob Brown talking about getting out there, enjoying the weather, doing a little golf. Well, you can do that on Friday, June 17th. This is always a great event at the Lynx and Spruce Grove. It's the 630 Chad Santa's Anonymous Golf Tournament. We have 144 spots. You don't want to wait too long to grab yours. In fact, if you sign up through the Chad website before May 16th, you'll be entered to win a $500 gift card to Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. 500 bucks. Yeah, go to 630Ched.com or uh, look for the details on the 630Ched app. It's Friday, June 17th. All net proceeds from this tournament go to 630Ched Santa's Anonymous, which helps bring Christmas to over 25,000 Edmonton children each year. We're so proud of this. It honors uh, Gary Dreger, who was uh, known as the head Elf at 6:30, Chad Santa's Anonymous. If it uh, it weren't for his heart, his selfless nature, and his love of his community, the true meaning of the holiday season could easily be forgotten. We are a long way from uh, Christmas, but the people at 6:30, Chad Santa's Anonymous, do work year-round. You can also come to the office, 5204 84th Street, during traditional weekday business hours to sign up as well. Uh, or just go to 630Ched.com. That might be the easiest way for you to get the details. I've been able to golf in that the last couple of years. It is a great day, a fun day, and all for a very important cause. Reed Wilkins with you inside sports on 630Ched. Thanks a lot for tuning in tonight. The uh, 2-2 game between the Penguins and the Capitals. Third period is about to start. That is the only game in the NHL tonight. The Blue Jays are not playing the NFL draft. Quarterback Jared Goff out of the University of California goes first overall to the Rams. Another quarterback, Carson Wentz from North Dakota State, goes second to the Philadelphia Eagles. Some other notables, fourth overall to the Cowboys out of Ohio State. Running back Ezekiel Elliott. Uh, Cornerback Eli Apple from Ohio State goes 10th overall to the Giants. Wide receiver Corey Coleman out of Baylor goes 15th overall to uh, the Cleveland Browns. They are now 17 picks. Keanu Neal, strong safety out of Florida. The last pick, he goes to the Atlanta Falcons. You can text us at uh, 630-630. This texter says, in terms of having an injury spotter in the CFL, there are telltale signs... In terms of balance and movement, when a head injury is present, watching on field, you're looking at the play, not the player. By watching players, it may help to prevent further injury. Yes, this is a good thing. I think that's a pretty uh, well-written text there, for sure. Uh, Corey, who's been texting tonight about the Edmonton Oilers. Cor, I, 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 lo- I love... I gotta love. I love Corey's approach and attitude tonight. He's uh, have written in some very well thought out texts about the Oilers, about where they're headed. Clearly, he's an involved fan who understands things, and he's worried about where the team is going. But he also sums up the helplessness of being a fan right here. He says, "I have a theory about the Oilers, but not a solution." LOL. I'm not that good. <laughs> 
Well, you know what? When it comes to the solutions, only one guy has to be good. Well, at least this summer. One guy mainly has to be good. That's Peter Shirelli, the general manager of the team. He will be representing the Oilers at the draft lottery in uh, Toronto on Saturday. We'll have coverage on 630 Chad starting at 5. Uh, lucky Bill Scott and his lucky socks and all that stuff not going uh, this year. I also want to tell you, as part of a tune-up for the Rio Olympics, Canada Basketball announcing that right here in Edmonton at the Savile Community Sports Centre from July 9th to 11th, Canada will host China. A three-game series. It is the 2016 Edmonton Grads International Classic. Who did they play? Uh, a couple years ago, they played Brazil. Last year, we had the Olympic qualifying tournament here. Of course, Edmonton, the Savile Center, the home to the Canadian women's Olympic basketball team. So, uh, yeah, July 9th to 11th. That's going to be, what, just a month before the Olympic tournament. Uh, the Olympic Games, August 5th to 22nd. So, good stuff. Remember that. All right, 780-496-0063. Is this the Corey who's been texting tonight? Hello, this is Corey. How's it going, Reed? Good. I'm glad you called in, buddy. I've been, I've been enjoying reading your texts. <laughs> hey, you know what? Uh, you know what? A couple of years ago, I'm looking at the Oilers' first line. You got Nuge, 20. Yep. You got Hall, 21. And you got Everly, 22. And I'm like, which team has ever had a line of that age that was going to lead the team out of the wilderness? Like, you look at Chicago when they're brutal. You look at Pittsburgh when they're brutal. They, they didn't bring these kids in, you know, to lead the team. That's part of the problem with this team. They've never had anybody to teach them how to be leaders. I, I, I agree. I, I think that there was, and I'm not, I, I think those guys are, are, are good players. I mean, obviously, but I think there was a little too much responsibility too soon, right? Definitely. I mean, Hall, Hall has been the first line left winger since the second he was drafted, right? Yep. Exactly. And and basically, Everly, basically Nuge, like 20 years old, he's a first-line center. When's that ever happen? Okay, Crosby, give me a break. It's Crosby. Like, like McDavid can be their first-line center next year, probably. Well, he pretty much but, was this year. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. You know, I've had this argument at work a lot with guys who are all a bunch of hockey fanatics, right? So so you look at, like, okay, when, when Hall came in, when he got drafted, I wanted to see Hall go back to junior. And everybody, Oilers fans, no way, bring him in, bring him in. Every one of them, bring him in, bring him in. In my, in my opinion, it's not a matter of whether the player is ready to play in the NHL. It's whether this team is ready for him. Like, look at this year, you got uh, Nurse. The team wasn't ready for him. All of a sudden, he comes in, he's got too much responsibility. The team wasn't ready for him. Hall, Nuge, Everly, all of them, the team wasn't ready for them. Well, it's I think not I, that they weren't ready for the NHL. I, I think ideally Nurse would have spent the whole season or a larger portion of the season in the minors. I think the injuries bit the defense and yeah. the lack of depth bit the defense. Would, and you're not going to. Sorry. Why, why didn't Trelly try to pick up Earhoff off waivers or uh, Skidari and leave Nurse down there? Like, it was free. Scary different story. He had some contract left, but right. but Earhoff had nothing left. Take him for free, play him the year, and see what happens. Well, I think no with, risk with Earhoff. Weren't they worried about the concussions a bit? Well, it's even regardless, it was over this year. He's done. So there wasn't a whole lot of gamble. He only had a million dollar contract. There's only 
you know what, very few, 30% of the season left. Well, I, I do think you make a good point, though, in general, and getting back to what you're saying about support players. I mean, and let's let's face it, Corey, it's like the old Seinfeld joke. As much as as Oilers fans like certain players, you're cheering for the laundry, right? Like if a yeah. if a if a great Dane puts on the Oilers jersey, people will cheer for him if he can score and body check. So what is wrong with having the placeholders, right? Okay. Yeah. Maybe, maybe whether it's Airhoff or not. I mean, we can debate the merits of that individual yeah, player, I... but hopefully Shirelli has the attitude where. He, he, you know what? Okay, let's let's pick the worst contract in the last, maybe in Oilers history, Nikita Nikitin, right? Okay. If he would have got a one-year deal, we're probably worth the risk, right? Yeah, exactly. But, and but now, then, obviously, you know that, I no. think Mac T had to give him that money or he wasn't getting him. So in, in fairness to Mac T, it didn't work out, obviously. But if he didn't give him that, we weren't going to get him. He went and traded for his rights. Like, yeah, which, no which was surprising. Coming here as a free agent. Yeah, but but I mean, there's nothing wrong with signing. And again, let's let's use a Mark Fainer and Andrew Ference. There's nothing wrong Yager. with signing. Sign, sign him for a year or two. Sign him for sign him for a year or two. Right? You fill the play. You, you you identify Florida. who you're building around, and then you have moving parts at the other positions. Florida, bunch of young kids, but what do they do? They bring in some veterans to lead them. Well. Yager's in his forties, and look how and look how well uh, Florida's veteran goalie, who a lot of people had written off. Now, granted, yeah. they didn't win the playoff series. I thought Luongo had a great year. Yeah. Here's another thing. So you erased the Oilers' last three seasons, and this team is underachieving hugely. Now everybody says they're no good because of the last three seasons. But if you erase that from your memory, which you can't, but if you did, this <laughs> team is underachieving. Uh, you know? I, well, I would I would agree with that. I mean, oh, Washington just scored, by the way, to go up three two. I mean, you can't keep finishing in the bottom three six of the yes, last seven it's years. All, you know, another thing mentioned earlier tonight. Now that St. Louis is beach Ch- Chicago, yeah, between their ears, everything's changed. Yes, big time. Now they can believe the Oilers are stuck in that. When did the Oilers do the best? When they had a psychologist as a coach, they had Kruger. Like he had these guys believing in themselves and not. Dumping on themselves. Well, I He's did. The only coach that's able been able to do that. I, I did notice this year, Corey. There, the Oilers had that the the second six game homestand, the one they had in March, and going into that, I mean, they were pretty much out of it, but there was still that glimmer of hope if they went five and yeah. one or five zero oh and one that they could pull themselves back in it. And already before that homestand, a couple of guys who have been here a while. We're saying, well, we know we're not going to make the playoffs, so it's so it's tough, yeah. you know. And Hall was Hall was one of them. And I look, I I like Hall. I, I I don't buy into a bunch of the body language stuff. I think it has worn them down a little bit, though. You know, I think that. I feel sorry for all these guys, including Yakupov. Now, let me ask you another question, though, based on the stuff that you were texting earlier. Am I being too hard on Everly? You can tell me. Too hard on Everly? Mm, you know what? It, it's what it, it it goes back to. What is he? Look, look back at Dustin Penner. Dustin Penner is a big, huge guy. So everybody says he's big, huge, he's got to play tough. Well, he didn't play tough. But in his role, he was great in what he did. But the Oilers fans hated him because he didn't play what they wanted his role to be. Everly's the same thing. Everybody, he's a scorer. He's not a tough player. He's not a back checker. But then the rest of the team hurts him. The rest, he doesn't fit in this team the way it is right now. Like Everly's unbelievable. Half the league, like three-quarters of the league want him. 
Right, but, but it's 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 right. It's now. got it's got to be in that situation where he doesn't have to be freeing up pucks and and being the hardest no, worker back he, checker. He just being a goal scorer, he's an unbelievable goal scorer. He could get more than thirty, but this team hurts him because the lack of confidence on this team and the and the mood of this team is failure. Well, and a lot of people have said this, and Matthew Barnaby was on, I think it was last week. He said the Oilers have too much of the same type of player, right? Yeah, that is true. It's like I mean, you, I. If you had a if you had if in football you had a bunch of receivers who could only run deep patterns, you know, like you're... plus another thing, these players are not what they can be because they were never taught. They were never they never had to learn. They never they never got to learn from the right situation. Well, that's they never got to. that's why they need another maroon type player. Yeah. I'm not ter- not t- just talking about body type and ability. I'm talking about attitude. Like Patrick Maroon was disgusted. You you probably heard his interviews. He was Same disgusted. Hendricks, but he's getting used to it now. <laughs> well, you're right. I, I remember the first interview I did with Hendricks because uh, sometimes Corey, I do interviews after the first period, and I think it was Hendricks's second game as an Oiler, and I think they fell behind, and then it might have been two two after one or something like that. And he's just like, I can't believe how we started the game. Like we can't feel our way into a game. We have to go. We have to go out there and grab it and take control. Unfortunately. The Oiler fans blame the players for it. They blame Hall. They blame blame everybody. They blame Nuge. Blame the defense. All the young defensemen. But these guys, it's not all their fault. They never got to learn from the right person, from a leader. They well, got rid of Horkoff. Horkoff was teaching those guys. Well, that's the thing. When when you're this, like I've said, when you're this poor, it's not one area that needs to be corrected. So then that's and that's why I get upset sometimes when people blame Taylor Hall. And it's not because I'm trying oh, to defend I'm Taylor Hall or, or he's a favorite or, or whatever. I mean, I'm trying to look at it objectively. How do you blame one guy? Hall over... doesn't know how to lead this team because he's never been taught. How do you learn if you're never taught? Okay, so Some then here's my que- here's my question for you then, Corey. Is it or would you support McDavid becoming the captain in the near future? You know, though, McDavid's special i would because he's special but it's still kind of scary they still need somebody uh, they need some maroons and they need some defensemen like uh man wh- how come nobody talked about shea weber don't you think nashville is gonna have to do something yeah weber's <sighs> might. 30 he's got six good years left that guy is what this team needs <laughs> that's that's an that's an interesting one because obviously he can still contribute during the regular season i was kind of like yeah, I don't know. Especially when it was Nugent Hopkins for for Weber, I was kind of like, yeah, I don't, I don't know, I don't know. I don't know though. This team, it, if we don't get somebody to teach, we're we're just going to keep on floundering. Well, he's, he and he's got to change something. And I, and I have total respect for the six million dollar players, and I think they're all very good hockey players. Oh, I, I mean, I think, and I think Lahal is legitimately a. Well, I mean, he's been top ten in the league in scoring. You can't underestimate that. No, but you might have to say goodbye to somebody. You're right, just for the sake of of the chemistry and how the puzzle fits together. This team has failed the players more than the players have failed the team by a long shot. Corey, the management really. Yeah, I, I got to take a break. I'm really glad you called, and thanks for texting as well. I hope you keep listening, man. All right, for sure. That, okay. All right, that's Corey on the open line, 780-496-0063. Really glad he called in because his texts were interesting uh, tonight as well. Uh, tell you what, uh, Bernard, we will do both Reed Colsett and Kevin McDonald in the final half hour of the show. I think we can uh, we can rearrange that, and uh, we got to take a quick timeout though. It's eight twenty one. Ovechkin trying to hop out of the zone. A stop here by Hornquist. He and Backstrom lock up, and now Ovechkin with room. 
Coming up the left side, into the Penguin Zone, trying to use the defender as a shield, couldn't get it through, and now, oh, she scores! Oh, she's second of the game! A backhander low against Murray! And with 16.37 to go, it's 3-2, Washington! All right. Oshie with two tonight. That's his second. Came a few minutes ago. Ovechkin with the assist. And the Capitals are up 3-2. Now just under 14 minutes to go. It is four-on-four hockey right now. There was a big uh, kerfuffle in front of the Washington net. Only NHL game tonight. Western Series tomorrow. So we'll have the Blues and the Stars. And uh, we'll have the Sharks and the Predators, the two upset teams. At least I consider them upset teams. They'll be going at it in the other game. I can tell you we will be carrying the uh, NHL Conference Finals and Stanley Cup Finals right here on uh, 630 Ched. Jonathan has texted in. He says, hey, Reed, I uh, said all season that the Oilers need one of Bacchus, Aginla, Marlowe, or Brown, and a player like Burns on defense, a leader who can show McDavid how to lead and has the respect of the Halls and Everleys and can hold them accountable. This is more important than anything else as this team has continually shown that the fight is not there. It is a leadership issue. That is uh, coming in from Jonathan. The Jonathan, good good points. I, I, th- I think when you say the fight is not there, that I, I think that's valid. The the fight is not there consistently. At, t- at times this year, it looked like, oh, okay, they're, at least this is what I think. Maybe Jonathan doesn't agree with me here. But, but at least that there were times I thought this year where I, where I was watching a game or after the game and I thought, oh, okay, they stayed, you know, they stayed competitive. Yes, they made a mistake or they, they have an inferior roster, but... They stayed competitive. They did the whole Todd McClellan, let's not fold their, fold their hand thing. And then I really thought that in February and March, that that, that waned a bit. And, and maybe, you know what, for me, that might be the most disappointing part of the season, is that we know they went in with a roster that still needed work, with some question marks, and then we know the injuries didn't help. But you can always control your effort level. And look, some nights, you know, you're tired, the other team is 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 better, you don't get a bounce, whatever. So much stuff happens over 82 games. But you can always kind of hang around. You know what I mean? And, and I mean, look at how many games during the NHL season, one goal or one goal plus an empty net, or they go to go to overtime, right? And I mean, you, you, I just know from, from following the... Um, you know, when you see another team coming to town or, you know, the Oilers are playing a team coming up, so you start watching them or reading about them a little bit more, looking at their schedule. And you, then, you know, they might say, well, we had a we had a bad road trip. We only won two out of five. And then you look and you see, well, that road trip, they actually went 2-1-2. and two. You know, they got points in four of the five games. And the Oilers would have a, a road trip or a set of five games, and they were 1-3-1 and one, or 1-4. Or and four. So... I think Jonathan makes a good issue about just that fight there, about the ability to stay in it, to avoid the disastrous plays. Okay, you know what? Maybe you have a bad period. Well, maybe you only get outscored one nothing in that period instead of instead of three nothing. And and there were times the Oilers were better at that. There were times there they weren't. There were times maybe the goaltending disguised some of those 
problems, which which I don't have a problem with. I think you need to have a good goaltender, but Nielsen certainly did it in the first third of the season, and Talbot did it at times after that. I, I do think that that'll be another thing Shirelli will be looking for. Jonathan, I don't know if it's specifically going to be Gidlow or Marlowe or Brown at this point of the season. Bacchus might be a UFA, or he will be a UFA, or he is a UFA, but I, I don't know if he's going to come to Canada. But there are a lot of guys out there that we might not talk about who bring that consistent effort every night and hopefully can get everybody pulling in that same direction. You know, Hendricks has tried to do it. Uh, I think Latestu tries to do it. I think Maroon certainly tried to do it, and he's a guy can, who can back it up with some with some activity on the score sheet as well. So fair points by Jonathan for sure. And Corey was saying the, the, the same thing. Sort of the mix of the team just has never really been the right one. Either it's been too many of the same player or it's been too much youth or, or the wrong veterans injected. Hindsight being 2020, hopefully uh, Shirelli able to learn from that. All right, uh, a little bit on that uh, the CFL news today about the player safety issues and Olympic marathon runner Reed Coolsit when we get back. This is J.C. Sheriff from your Edmonton Eskimos, and you're listening to Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on 6:30. Chad. Hey, thanks for tuning in tonight. It is 8:34, and they continue to go at it in Washington. Nick Benino has scored, and it's 3-3 now into the final 10 minutes. Good game, game one between the Caps and the Penguins. Reed Wilkins with you. Hey, this is uh, pretty cool. We got Canada's top marathon runner on the line here. Reed Coolset getting ready to compete in Rio. Reed, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Uh, thanks for having me, Reed. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Good to talk to you today. <laughs> and uh, man, you are you are a, a busy guy, and I'm I'm almost not sure where to begin. But uh, the the jumping off point uh, that that kind of drew my attention here was uh, you spent some time in uh, in Kenya. I'll, I'll just start with a general question. What were you doing there? Yeah, I've been going to Kenya for the past six years to train. Um, well, to train at altitude, but also to train with a lot of really good runners. And, of course, I picked January and February because the weather there is great and the weather in Canada is not as great. So it uh, it works out really well. So what kind of, besides the weather, what are the advantages of doing some training there? Yeah, I mean, training at altitude is really beneficial because once you get used to breathing in thinner air and then you come back to sea level, it seems a little bit easier. Um, the biggest advantage I find is running with a lot of really good runners. Um, in Canada, as far as the marathon is concerned, there's really only a couple other guys um, running at the level I'm running. And in Kenya, there's literally hundreds of guys. And even in the small town of E10 where I go, there's still, um, you know, a few dozen guys running faster than 210 in the marathon, which no Canadian has ever done. All right, so you know it, it's it's funny, Reed. When we talk about hockey, we think of Canada. When a lot of people talk about distance running, they they think of Kenya. What is it about that nation that has allowed them to produce so many great runners over the years? Yeah, I mean it's a pretty interesting topic that's been uh, researched quite a bit, and I'm, I'm not sure if there's a real uh, definite answer, but. Um, 
the it's, it's interesting that their really good runners don't come from all over the country. They actually come from a pretty small area um, where, where I actually train, and it's uh, it's about a hundred mile radius around Eldoret, um, which is uh, one of the bigger cities in Kenya. But it's up in the Rift Valley, so it's a really high altitude, and they've done things like measure their bodies to see if there's any sort of difference. And that's where the difference does come in. Um, their legs, uh, their calf muscles seem to be higher up their legs. So they, they carry less weight um, further up from the, the, the middle of their body. So their running economy tends to be a little bit better. And, and is it true that a, maybe just not with the, the Kenyans, but a lot of distance runners aren't usually particularly tall, right? Um, they, they, it doesn't actually really matter. I mean, okay. there's, some, there's been some good, distance runners that are, well, yeah, I mean, you wouldn't say, like, you know, over 6'5 or anything tall, right. but, you know, six feet is, is is all right. But, yeah, the marathon runners typically, um, yeah, are somewhere probably around 5'8". Um, they, they tend to be not quite as tall, but, um, yeah, there's there's been a few guys that have done all right uh, around six feet. What, what's it like... Um I mean, standard of living wise. I don't know if culture shock is is the right word, but but how do you compare sort of the uh, the standard of living and and the pace of life and all those types of things from Canada to Kenya? Yeah, that's a really good question because the first time I went to Kenya back in 2011, um, yeah, it was a real eye opener. Um, now when I go back, it everything seems really familiar, um, and I have to remind myself just how different it is. Um, yeah, there's very yeah, like very few people have cars there. Very few people have their own televisions. Um, but you know that being said, of course, the the really good runners have you know have all those things. And where I stay, you know, we have hot water and electricity um, regularly, and um, it's quite comfortable. Where at the hotel where I stay, it's a high altitude training camp. And then um, yeah, I mean it really varies, but life tends to be much more simple uh, in rural Kenya. People just hang out and they're outside their houses a lot more because, you know, you don't have, like I said, they don't have televisions and whatnot, so people just spend more time playing outside. The kids are playing and adults are socializing and, you know, going to the market and just taking your time doing those kind of activities rather than jumping in a car and, and going to a, you know, like a superstore or something like that. It's, you know, it's just a it's just a bit slower um, uh, routine, but uh, it's, I love it because it's it's simple. I can just focus on running. Yeah, for sure. Canadian distance runner Reed Coolset joining us inside sports on six thirty. Chet, so uh, take me back uh, a little bit. How how did you first get into distance running and realize? Well, gee, I'm gonna I'm gonna pursue this competitively. Yeah, it was a real long. Um, kind of journey to where I decided that I could do it professionally. Um, when I was a kid, I would just do a lot of sports, and I went to the sports camp, and we would just run every day at lunch, and I excelled at running. Um, but yeah, I played a lot of different sports, even through high school. And then once I got to university, um, I met my coach who I have now, Dave Scott Thomas, and he was a real influential person in my um, running life, really opened up my eyes to you know what's possible and what you know, really hard work looks like. And from university, things really picked up to by the end of university when I graduated, I was looking for a job where I could balance running and working. So I started working 25 hours a week at a bank. 
and that allowed me to still train and see my potential and, and, and you know, pay the bills. And then after a couple of years, um, I made the world championships. Um, so I got funding from the government and also got picked up sponsors. And, yeah, so that was 2005, and I've been running full-time since. Wow, okay, awesome stuff. So here, here's a question for you. For, for someone like me who runs – you know, I, I try to run every every second day and stay in shape and, and all that kind of stuff, but you're on, a, obviously, a totally other world. How many kilometers will you run in a week? Yeah, when I'm training for the marathon, I will typically run about 200 kilometers in a week. 200K a week. And how many marathons yeah. do you run in a typical year? Um, two is my max. Oh, you have a max of two. Yeah, in order to train properly race it really hard, and then recover. Uh, it's hard to fit in more than two, um, especially once I consider that I want to spend parts of my year focusing on what I call speed, even though it's you know still 10K stuff. Other people, you know, I'm sure just would call that endurance. But, um, yeah, so there's, there's different times where I could focus on different uh, strengths and weaknesses. Um, I, very could, I, mean, I could run a lot more marathons if I wanted to, but to – to run them uh, as fast as I want to, um, you really need to, you know, build up that that big peak and recover properly. All right. Because so sometimes even in training, I'll, I'll I can run 45k or right. 40k and and still be fine the next day. But to run it fast is different. Okay, I got you. Now you are qualified for Rio, right? Yeah, I've I've done the big check, which is run the standard of the marathon. Now I just need to make sure that I'm healthy and fit going in. So. As long as I'm showing good fitness through shorter distance races, such as 10K, 15K, then um, yeah, it should be should be fine. Now, will Rio be your your only marathon of this year? Your first marathon of this year? How will you structure it? Yeah, it, w- it will be my first marathon this year. I kind of struggled with that. I really wanted to run Boston this year, and decided that uh, since this is like my last Olympics, to just focus the first part of the year on Rio. Um, that way I can pick and choose the races that I feel will set me up best for Rio. And then if all goes well with recovery afterwards, um, I could potentially do a marathon later in the fall. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you'll be 37 by the time of the, the race in Rio. Is is that old for a distance runner, or can you still be competitive into your 40s? How do you look at that? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely on the older um, in the older part of the spectrum. Uh there will be there'll be a few guys older than me. Um, uh, like there's a guy Meb from uh, the, the states. Here he'll be I think 41 um, come race day. And in London, he was even older than I w- would be in Rio, and he finished fourth. So yeah, there's um, yeah there'll, there'll be a few guys older than me, but yeah, 37 is definitely on the uh, older um, <laughs> the older one of the older ages. Um. When you get up on a race day, what's the biggest challenge for you that you might get up and see? Is it heat? Is it knowing you're running at altitude? Is it perhaps uh, rainy or, or slippery conditions? What's the, the biggest bother for you? Yeah, it's a good question because, you know, like a lot of these, a lot of the things, like, will affect everyone the same way. And most of the stuff you'll, you'll know ahead of time. So you know if the you course is really if it's turny. Or if it's elevation, um, and you can train for a lot of that stuff. Uh, heat is the one thing that kind of affects some people differently than others. You can 
um, acclimate to it by exposing yourself to heat in the couple in the two weeks leading up to the race. But there's still you see some variance between people who handle it well and don't handle it well, and that has typically been um, what's been tough for me in the marathon. I've actually raced well in heat relative to others at the 5K and 10K, and then the marathon I've had trouble keeping my drinks down in heat. So it's something that I've been uh, conscious of and, and working on a bit in the last few years, and hopefully uh, Rio, um, you know, I'll be able to handle it a bit better, and, and hopefully it's not too hot then too. But. What, what's the date for that race? It's August 21st. It's the last day of the Olympics. All right. Okay. August 21st. Well, I'll, we'll be yeah. keeping an eye out for you. Thanks for updating this cool. incredible experience in 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 Kenya, and uh, all the best with your continued continued training, Reed. Well, maybe we can do this again before the Olympics. Thanks so much for your time. They have a lot of weapons the Caps still have to be concerned about and a ton of time left. Here's Benito, and he scores. The puck coming out of the corner as Kessel had sent it there, and then Orpik and Kessel with a little tussle afterward. But Nick Benito has scored from the slot with 11-18 to go in the third period. It's a multi-point night for Benito and a 3-3 game here in Washington as that puck hopped right over the glove hand of Braden Holtby. That is still the score, and there are only 50 seconds left, so overtime looming in game one of that uh, second-round Eastern Conference series. Reed Wilkins with you inside sports on 630 Chet. The CFL really making some interesting moves here heading into the new season to talk about some of them. Pleased to welcome to the show the league's VP of Football Ops and Player Safety, Kevin McDonald. Kevin, how are you doing? Great, Reed. Thanks for uh, taking the time to have us on. Yeah, well, good to talk to you. And I think some interesting stuff and some uh, important stuff, stories that circulate around sports and football specifically uh, in this day and age. I, I know there's uh, an update here about um, an injury spotter that's going to be looking at CFL games this season. Can you give us the nuts and bolts on how this is going to work? Well, I think essentially we're going to have an individual here located at the command center in Toronto. Um, it's uh, it's going to take advantage of the, that individual is going to be able to take advantage of the new technology um, where we've implemented uh, this year into the command center, which gives us a direct feed um, in the broad, through the broadcast lines of a, an all 24 camera, which essentially gives um, somebody in, in our command center the ability to see all 24 players within a frame um, at all times. So essentially this extra set of eyes is going to have a unique um, look and access and perspective uh, in addition to all the camera angles that the viewers have at home through traditional broadcast feeds to essentially um, serve as an additional tool um, that can help identify um, when a potential injury may occur on the field um, and then when an athlete might be in distress and stay on the field. So it's really an additional set of eyes. Our officials are, are probably the first line of defense um, for identifying injuries and working with the players on field um, should they uh, sustain an injury, um, and then alerting the medical staff um, in each team's uh, bench areas who also do a great job monitoring games, um, in addition to the players themselves who are, are on top of things and make sure their, their teammates are, are, uh, are doing okay next to them. Let me just let me just clarify here. When we're talking about an injury spotter, is is this just tailored to concussions, or is this tailored to any potential injury? Well, I think primarily the focus is going to be on um, head or neck injuries, or okay. at least when a, when a, a collision occurs, where it may look like an, in, an athlete sustained a, a, an injury like that. Obviously, it's it's that individual is not going to be responsible for diagnosing injuries. 
um, but they're going to be able to alert um, clubs, medical staffs as to when somebody maybe needs to have a, have a look taken at. Should should it get missed? Like I said, for the most part, these these take care of themselves, and people are are assessed accordingly. But this is an, an extra tool um, and an extra set of eyes to make sure that should some something go missed or undetected on the field, that somebody's getting uh, getting that communicated to them, um, and, and that athlete's being taken care of. Kevin, this is really interesting to me, and video review has been a, a pretty big topic on, on sports talk shows on this one specifically over the last few months because of some of the stuff we've seen happen during the NHL season and what the CFL has done. And I had Glenn Johnson on a few days ago talking about, uh, uh, or I guess the replay uh, stuff was a, a couple of weeks ago about the you know the eye in the sky spotter and, and the more sure. opportunity to challenge plays. It seems to me the CFL is really trying to be bold here with what they're using video for and and off-field and off-site officials for. I mean, what's the balance between saying, you know, we want to keep an eye out for these things, but also respecting the fact that it's, you know, people who aren't in the so-called heat of the moment or, or, you know, the flow of the game potentially making game-affecting decisions? Well, I won't double up necessarily on what Glenn commented specific to the game and the rules flow, but I can tell you on the health and safety yeah. um, issue, there there's no room for for um, any unnecessary risk. So this this puts us in a position to make sure that we're we're putting ourselves in the best position possible to make sure that the health and safety of the the athletes is at the forefront, and, and this gives us an additional tool to to continue on a lot of the positive work that's already been done. Okay. Um, Kevin McDonald joining us. He's with the CFL, the VP of uh, Football Operations and Player Safety, and uh, some focus on some player safety stuff today. Tell us a little bit about uh, the number of padded practices. Um, is, is that number changing from previous seasons, and if so, to what extent? We had, there was no specific number in the, um, in the collective agreement on, on padded practices. However, if you look at a 20-week regular season with, with two bye weeks, it's probably safe to assume that contact was probably limited at about a maximum of 19 padded practices over the course of the season. But that number was not, um, was not written anywhere. So, you know, the number 17 is a number that we've discussed with the Players Association and our managers general managers and coaches to make sure that it's a, it's, it's a number that can work with our clubs to make sure that athletes are adequately prepared and that we're continuing to put a, a quality product on the field. Okay. Well, and I think that's what, what fans want. They want, they want up-tempo games and they want healthy players, so hopefully that, that helps that. Um, can you give me a sense of any initial feedback from, from the PA and from coaches on some of these changes? I think all of it's been, I mean, initial feedback uh, has been positive, but we've been working in collaboration um, daily. You know, we have constant dialogue with our Players Association on these health and safety issues. Um, our, our coaches and general managers were involved um, in the discussions leading up to, to today's announcement. So everything is um, kind of done hand-in-hand hand with the Players Association, and we're, we're, we're very happy about the announcements that were made today. Okay. Can you tell me what the KD test is? I'm hoping that doesn't stand for Kraft Dinner. <laughs> it does not stand for Kraft Dinner. It's uh, really it's a, it's a, an additional tool again um, that our uh, therapists, <clears throat> excuse me, therapists and doctors can use to um, assist assist in um, you know it's an objective remove from play concussion screening test. It's an additional tool um, that will be run in parallel with our. Uh, 
following our additional our current sideline um, assessment tools, this this gives the the therapist um, and uh, doctors an additional baseline to refer an athlete to should they may, maybe suspect uh, concussion or if he's showing symptoms or signs of concussion. So we we piloted this project last year across four teams in the league. Um, the the results were were very favorable and positive and. Um, in our winter meetings, uh, medical meetings this year, we made a decision that uh, we'd want to collect some more data, uh, continue the research project that we uh, embarked on last year, and try to get some more data and see if there's any correlation that we can uh, benefit from moving us forward. And, and Kevin, I guess before I let you go, one more question, because I, I think I, I think a lot of people are going to hear player safety and, and hear some of the stuff you're telling me about tonight and, and think that it is all about concussions and we know about some of the lawsuits that have been launched against other leagues and and, and things like that is I, I mean is is the large focus of your department when it comes to player safety is it the head and neck stuff or is that just the headline grabbing stuff and and there's equal work being done in other areas that's obviously a critical um, part of what we we're, we're working on and, and obviously is a um, in the news and the media on a regular basis but they're when I meet with our medical staff, they they are focused on on all types of injuries and have uh, you know an equal concern for all all aspects concerning the play you know related to player health and safety. So um, you know in addition to that, and that's why we've we've termed this individual as an injury spotter. Um, it's primarily focused to to identify when an athlete's in distress, which could be you know a knee, um, you know a hip, something that's causing him to to labor on field. Um, you know, obviously the, the concussion part is a critical element of that. But like I said, we can't identify concussions or any injury. All we can do is point out when somebody might be in distress and be showing some symptoms or signs that they might need, uh, need to be removed from the field of play or, or take a, have, a, have a, take a knee and, and have somebody come out and take a look at them. All right. Well, Kevin, interesting stuff. All the best moving forward with this. Uh, again, bold stuff by the Canadian football league here. Thanks a lot for your time to explain Great this to France. appreciate it. That is Kevin McDonald, Vice President of Football Ops and Player Safety for the CFL. 3-3, Penguins and Capitals are going to overtime. Baseball note tonight, Baltimore beat the White Sox 10-2, ending the White Sox six-game winning streak. The L.A. Rams taking California quarterback Jared Goff, first overall in the NFL draft. Patrice Bergeron, Ryan Kessler, Anze Kopitar, the finalists for the Selkie Trophy as the NHL's top defensive forward. It is the moment Bernard soon has been waiting for. I know. I cannot wait. Well, you don't have to wait anymore. We are yep. going to do like we did last night. Okay. Three, do it three times. Yep. Lottery simulator. Go. I got Buffalo. I got Maple Leafs. Second pick. I got Jersey. I got Buffalo. And then I got Boston. I got Vancouver. Okay. Uh, all right. Let's do it again. Okay. Oh, Oilers. The Flames. <laughs> okay, second pick. I got Canucks. I got Montreal. And then I got Leafs third. I got Leafs. Okay, third. so we, we I got All-American the first time and All-Canadian the second time. Third and final try. Here okay. we go. Jets. Oilers. Okay. <laughs> Canucks. Canucks. And Leafs third. Yeah, and Arizona for me. Okay, so my first overalls were Buffalo, Edmonton, and Winnipeg. Who's were yours again? Um, Oilers, Vancouver, and Arizona. Poor, poor Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Bernard, great work tonight. Thanks, buddy.
Thank you. I want to thank our guests this evening, Kevin McDonald, Reed Coolset, Rob Brown, Demetrius Maxey, Kelly Rudy, Chris Kerber. Thanks to everybody who called and texted tonight. Tomorrow, we will hear from Oilers prospect Ethan Bear having a great playoff with the Seattle Thunderbirds. Gary Galley from the NHL on Rogers will join us as well. The studio producer this evening, Bernard Sue, and the producer of the show is Dave Campbell. I am Reed Wilkins. Overtime ahead between the Penguins and the Capitals. It's 3-3. Thanks for listening. 630 Chad Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins. Weekdays at 6 on 630 Chad.